desperate prayers turn confident when God speaks. And I'm here with my wife and our son, who was probably having difficulty sleeping, so he's somewhere around. He's one year old. His name is Ezra. My wife's name is Ting Ting. We have a lot of old friends here, but I also see, see some new faces, see some people I haven't met before. I would be happy to say hello after the service. Elijah had just been used by God to judge the wicked and display the greatness of God in an amazing way. Perhaps if, you're, if your kids grew up in Sunday school, they've, they've heard this story before. In 1 Kings 18, we have the story of Elijah facing off with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. One prophet of the true God versus nearly 1,000 false prophets. Elijah announces to the people of Israel that the God who answers by fire is the true God. Two bulls are prepared. The false prophets of Baal prepare their bull, crying out to Baal to answer with fire, cutting themselves until they bleed, but no answer. Elijah thoroughly soaks his sacrifice to the true God with water. He prays to God, and, and fire from the Lord falls and consumes not only the bull, but the wood and the stones and the dust and the water all around it. When the people see this, they say, The Lord he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah has the prophets of Baal executed. But do you know what happens next? Perhaps you would think that, that witnessing such an awesome miracle would give Elijah this, this spiritual high that he could propel him for years of faithful ministry. But instead, in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 19, Elijah is afraid and he's running for his life. Queen Jezebel had sent Elijah a death threat because he killed her false prophets. And Elijah, who confidently faced down nearly 1,000 false prophets, is now on the run. Elijah tells God, The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and killed your prophets with the sword, and, and I'm the only one left. And now they're going to kill me too. Elijah feels utterly alone. I assume none of us have ever received a death threat, but there's still many aspects of Elijah's story we can relate to. We're so quick to forget God's faithfulness and be overwhelmed by the evil we observe around us. We're so quick to, to feel alone and vulnerable, even when we are not alone. We're so quick to want to run from a situation when perhaps God would call us to stand firm. This morning we will see that years before Elijah came on the scene, King David felt, faced a similar situation. He felt alone in a wicked and evil world. This morning we're, we're back in the Psalms. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 12. This is a Psalm of David. 
You can see above the psalm in your Bibles that it says, to the choir master, according to the Sheminith. We do not know exactly what according to the Sheminith means, but it quite likely would be helpful to know this if we were preparing to sing this psalm together. For example, perhaps in heaven we might spend some time studying Hebrew, and then knowing that this psalm is according to the Sheminith gives us a particular tune or, or rhythm to sing it to. Notice as well that similarly to Psalm 10, this psalm is a psalm of lament. It begins with, with sadness, with desperation, but it ends with hope and trust. Please follow along with me as I read. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. I'd like to simply sum up a main idea we can take away from this psalm, and that is this. Desperate prayers turn confident when God speaks. There will be three points to this sermon. First, a desperate prayer, verses 1 to 4. Second, God speaks, verses 5 to 6. And third, a confident prayer, verses 7 to 8. So let's begin with point one, a desperate prayer. Look again uh, with me at verses one and two. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In verses one and two, we see that David's prayer is a prayer for salvation. He calls out to God, save me. Help, Zhou Ming. Similarly to the prophet Elijah, many years later, David feels all alone. Notice the main reason that, that David gives for his need for salvation. The, the godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished. David's heart is a heart after God. When it seems that, that others who follow God are nowhere in sight, David is faced with grave danger. The last time... I came to WSBC, I preached on Psalm 11, in which David asked, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here in Psalm 12, it looks like the foundations are destroyed. Righteousness and goodness in society is, is nowhere in sight. Those who truly follow God are, are nowhere to be found. The evil of those around him is, is evidenced by their words. In verse 2, we see that everyone utters lies. They have flattering lips and a double heart. Double heart, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Yes, someone who sins in his speech can be called double-tongued, but 
Double-hearted reminds us that it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. The root of the wicked's problem is, is not simply their tongues, but their double tongues come out of double hearts. Their hearts are ready to deceive, and so are their tongues. And so it's in this situation that, that David cries to God for help. When faced with similar situations in our own lives, do we cry out to God for help? Do we cry out to God to save? Can you relate to David's feeling of danger when the godly are nowhere in sight? This helps us see where, where David's identity rests. His identity rests in that, that he is one of the people of God. Have you ever met a group of people and, and thought, wow, these are my people? Perhaps you have a certain hobby, a particular video game, board game, ultimate frisbee, rugby, crocheting, nerding out about a particular movie franchise. If enough people hadn't watched pretty much every Marvel movie, what if on Disney Plus probably wouldn't be a thing? Your feeling of, of wow, these are my people, depends on how much you deeply care about this particular hobby or this particular interest. I think we can observe something right in David's attitude towards, towards who is is like him, who is similar to him, and who is not. Perhaps one might think that David's peers, the, the people that would have the most in common with David, would be other kings, other people in very high authority. There would be a sort of mutual respect and treaty-making, intermarriage, but, but nothing could be further from the truth. Kings of other nations were, were worshippers of other gods, so David would not be able to have true fellowship with them. The people who David feels most at home with are, are those who worship the one true God. So is that the same for you? You come on Sunday to WSBC and think to yourself, wow, these are my people. Do you come knowing that you have more in common with a fellow member from a different country and nation than someone from your own hometown who has not yet believed? And do you ever think to yourself, if it were not for Christ, I would never have become friends with this person. But thank God for the evidence of what, what he is doing in your lives. Thank God for unity. Thank God for the fellowship he has provided you with other believers. Thank God that you are not alone. And yet, there may also be situations in which you do feel alone. From Monday to Friday, you may not be able to spend a lot of time with other believers. Lies and deception in your workplace may abound that, that even if they do not affect you personally, make you feel quite out of place in your work environment. It might really bother you that a coworker is flattering your boss, or perhaps your boss has asked you to write up something deceitful and explain to you that, that pretty much, I mean, every, country, every company does things this way. It's in these situations of difficulty that we can and should pray to God for help. In verses 3 and 4, we see that David's desperate prayer for help is not only a, a prayer for salvation, it's also a prayer for judgment. David desires that God punish the evil around him. We read in, in verses 3 and 4, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? 
David's prayer for judgment is focused on the sin of the evil of those around him. And that sin is focused on their words. We have a description of their flattering lips and of the tongue that makes great boasts. And then we have an example of how the wicked boast. They boast out of a heart of pride and rejection of God. The wicked proudly say, our lips are with us, who is master over us? The wicked will answer to no man's master. The wicked will bow before no Lord. They will not humble themselves before the Lord and master of the universe. Ultimately, that is why they should be judged. Flattering lips are mentioned a second time here in verse 3. What is it that makes flattery so wrong? Flattery has a, has a goal, and it's, it's not for the good of the person being spoken to. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattering lips are willing to forsake the truth so that someone else will give us what we want. Sometimes a, a political leader will surround himself with, with yes men. These people probably got into their position not by speaking truth to this political leader, but by flattering him. And if they want to keep their position, they will continue to flatter him. In addition to the flattering lips, we have the tongue that makes boasts. These people are saying that with their tongues they will prevail, they will win with their words. They have come to power using their words and they hold sway over the people. In their attitude and in their words, they, they mock God. And David rightly cannot accept their mockery of God. David rightly cannot accept their disrespect of the one true God. David rightly is disgusted at the kind of boasting that he hears. And so David prays that God will judge, that God will cut off their lips and their tongues. If you're not a Christian here today, your, your attitude of who is master over us, you're not acknowledging of the God who created you as deserving of punishment. And yet as Christians, we cannot boast except in God. We cannot boast of our works because it was not our works that saved us. Jeremiah 29 verse 23 reads, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you are a Christian, you can boast in the Lord. It's not a proud boast. It's a, it's a humble boast. It's a realization that God sought to know me when I wanted nothing to do with God. It's a realization that every good gift that I have is from God. But what if you're already a Christian and reading through verses 1 to 4 is making you think that, that actually some of these sins of the tongue are sins that you commit as well? Perhaps you do lie or flatter or boast. What then? First would urge you that these ways of using our words cannot characterize ourselves now that we are Christians. 
We don't want to make excuses for a little lie compared to a big lie, or a white lie compared to a bold lie. We don't want to make excuses for a bit of flattery of someone we want something from, or a bit of boasting in our own selves. These ways of using our speech cannot characterize us now that we are Christians. Seeking to tame our tongues is a common struggle for us as Christians. The book of James, James refers to it. You could see it in your scripture reading, and then a couple chapters later in James, he's called tongue, a fire, and a world of righteousness, a world of unrighteousness. Our tongues stain the whole body and are set on fire by hell itself. So what should we do about our tongues? Brothers and sisters, if this is an issue for you, I would urge you to repent of this sin in your life. Check your own hearts. And praise God that if you are in Christ, he has already made you a new creation. You are no longer a slave to your sin. You are no longer a slave to your own tongue. God, by his spirit, can empower you to put away falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor. And if you lie, have lied to another person, confess your lie to that person. It's so easy for our lies to snowball. Perhaps the first lie is to cover up a sin, and then further lies are to cover up the lie. And that snowball can lead to an avalanche of sin that will seek to bury us alive. I personally observed the death trap a professing Christian can make for himself or herself with a lie. Brothers and sisters, we must be people of the truth. Whether lying or flattery or boasting, we must confess and repent of our sins of the tongue. That brings us to the end of point one, a desperate prayer. David's prayer is a prayer for salvation and prayer for judgment. Most of the time in the Psalms, we don't get to see exactly how God responds. But in our second point, we have the privilege of seeing God's response to David's prayer in verses 1 to 4. The second point God speaks, we see in verses 5 and 6. So look again at verses 5 and 6. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God sees the plight of his people. God sees the poor and needy God followers and the dangers that they face. As we saw in Psalm 10, God is the God who does justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Here we have God directly speaking, saying, I will now arise. God will not ignore this evil. He will not sit still when evil like this is committed against his people. God will take his people out of the danger they are in and protect them. He will put them in the safety that they long for. We can apply verse 6 not only to God's words here, but God's words elsewhere. Verse 6 is a meditation on what God's words are like. God's words are pure. They are like ultra-refined silver, purified seven times. There are no impurities in God's words. 
There is no hint of a lie in God's words. There is no hint of deceit in God's words. There is no error in God's words. God also has no need to flatter, but he has every right to command. As we look at this psalm more closely, it is interesting also to note that there are multiple ways that verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 mirror and contrast each other. Verses 3 and 4 contain a quote by the wicked. Verses 5 and 6 contain a quote by God. Verse 3 describes the flattering and boasting nature of the words of the wicked. Verse 6 describes the perfect purity of God's words. The tension and stark contrast in the center of this psalm help to highlight that this psalm builds up to a high point in verse 5 as God speaks. I do think this psalm is a chiasm. Back when I preached on Psalm 9 being a chiasm, I said that a chiasm introduces a set of themes and then repeats those themes in reverse order, with the emphasis most often in the middle. So there are multiple reflections, like a mirror. In Psalm 12, we see the chiasm reflected in, in, with 1 and 2 reflecting verses 7 and 8, and 3 and 4 reflecting verses 5 and 6. And while we can understand the meaning well already by, by simply reading the psalm through, there's a, a beauty to the poetic layering of the repeated themes in the psalms, as well that helps us to even more fully grasp what the psalmist would have us take away from the psalm. So in the center of Psalm 12, we have this between the words of the wicked that build to God's powerful and authoritative answer. There's a longing for safety that David has that God answers. God will be David's refuge. God will be David's safe place. In the story of Elijah, when Elijah brings his complaint before God that he is the only one left, God also answers. God speaks. God tells Elijah what he must do, and he tells Elijah that he is not alone. God tells Elijah that there are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. It feels that the godly have vanished, but at the time of David, at the time of Elijah, and in every generation since then, God has protected a faithful remnant who worship him. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll be protected from every single lie that comes our way. But it does mean that ultimately, and in the greatest sense of the word, God will keep you safe. No one can grab one of God's sheep out of his almighty hand. So brothers and sisters at WSBC, take comfort in that. When evil all around you seems to have the upper hand, when people around you seem to get away with all kinds of deceitful and underhanded things, remember that God knows. He knows the situation and ultimately he will judge. He knows the situation and he will protect. For a lie to exist, there has to be an understanding that truth exists as well. Once in a while you may get into a conversation with someone who tries to deny the existence of truth, but since they are making a truth claim, their, their argument is at the very least logically inconsistent. 
In other words, to discern what is a lie, we have to discern what is the truth. So even when the Apostle Paul is preaching to the Bereans, the Bereans are commended for examining what Paul said against the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. The Bereans knew that the Scriptures are the ultimate authority. God's words, not only here in verse 5, but all of God's words are pure, like ultra-refined silver. There is no error or blemish in them. All of God's words are pure. Oftentimes we, we get so used to the fact that, um, that our Bibles say Holy Bible on the front that we don't really think about what that means. If it just said the Bible on the cover, there would be nothing wrong with that. But in general, our English copies of the Bible have, have Holy Bible printed on the front. I don't know when that began, but that's a very good adjective to describe what the Bible is. The Bible is holy. And honestly, no other book deserves to be able to use that same adjective to describe itself. Only God is holy, and only His words are set apart from all other words. This is why WSBC's statement of faith states that the content of the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. There are no impurities in the words that God has said. And so, brothers and sisters at, at WSBC, when you're in a state of sorrow or in a state of fear, when it feels like you are alone, turn back to meditate on the truth of God's word. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. Not only does the Bible contain the logic of understanding mysteries regarding salvation, not only does the Bible recount history that displays the wonders of the works of God, not only does the Bible recount the life of the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but as we move through the various genres and books of the Bible, we begin to understand the unique contribution that each brings to the whole. For example, in spending some time in the Psalms this summer, you can be encouraged in your prayer life and in the ways the Psalms address your heart. There are times when we need to be taught by a logical argument, and there are times when we need to cry out to God in our pain or praise Him in jubilant song. God's words not only promise protection, but they are part of God's means of protection from the evil one. God's words help you to know him better. God's words help you to pray when you don't know what to pray. God's words help you know what to say or how to listen to a friend who's going through a difficult time. So brothers and sisters, continue to listen to what God has said in his word. That brings us to the end of our second point, God speaks. So after God speaks, does anything change for David? Has God brought David to safety? Has God judged the wicked? Look again with me at verses 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. We come to point three, a confident prayer. 
Compare and contrast verses 7 and 8 with verses 1 and 2. Whereas verses 1 and 2 have this note of desperation, verse 7 is brimming with confidence in God. The Lord will keep his people. The Lord will guard this generation forever. God has said he will put his person or his people in a safe place. And yet what hasn't changed? It appears that David's situation has not changed at all. Looking at verse 8, the wicked are still on the loose. Vileness is still exalted among the children of man. Liars, boasters, flatterers, all still have not yet been judged. So if the wicked are still on the prowl, why this change in heart? It's because David has heard God's words, and David has believed God's words. David has confidence that God will do what he said he will do. This psalm of lament moves from a desperate cry to trust of God who always keeps his word. There's a protection that David knows that the Lord will give his people. He was reminded of the clear truth of God's protection when God spoke in verse 5. Brothers and sisters, may our prayers of lament also end in confident hope in God. Perhaps not every single prayer will end in confident hope, but may our prayers each be moving in that direction. As we pray, may God be growing our trust in Him. And brothers and sisters at WSBC, God's faithfulness to you will never end. God will keep and guard His people. Even in your seeking to trust God amidst the difficulties of life, God is there. Author and pastor Mark Rogop, in his book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, writes of how after the death of his daughter, Pastor John Piper heard of his family's loss and sent Rogop a short email. Pastor Piper closed his email with the words, Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Rogop would later hold on to the truth contained in this phrase and many times in, in prayers of lament in the future would close a prayer saying, Lord, I am trusting you to keep me trusting. Brothers and sisters, God is fully worthy of our trust and he is with us to help us trust in him. One of the key means God uses to keep us trusting in him is his word. I do want to take a minute to address any non-Christians in the room. Where, where do you put your trust when things are hard? Perhaps if you're a non-Christian who has begun attending church, you've already begun to realize that some of the things you trusted before are untrustworthy. Perhaps you are tired of the wickedness in this world. Perhaps you used to trust your own self but I've begun to realize that not only is there so much that is out of your control, but you also often make a mess of what seems to be under your control. Is your conscience convicting you of sin when you lie or boast or flatter? Are you ashamed of the wickedness in your own life? It may be God's mercy to you if you get caught in a lie. It may be God's mercy to you if you 
begin to see more and more of the sin in your own life. Non-Christian friends, David trusts that God will judge and God will judge. And yet the pure words of God in the Bible tell us of Jesus. It's only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can be saved from the punishment we deserve for our sins. We really all deserve for our, our tongues to be cut off and worse for sins we have committed, but Jesus bore the penalty of our sins for us. He paid the penalty for us by dying on the cross, and he proved the payment for our sins was complete by rising from the dead. Perhaps you're a non-Christian here, and you're very much attracted to the story of Jesus. And I just want to say that it's a true story, and that believing in Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from the evil of this world. The response to this message of the good news of the gospel is to repent and believe, to turn away from our sins and turn to Christ, believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. If you want to know more about this good news, you can talk to Luke, you can talk to any one of the members here. I'll be happy to have more conversations about the good news as well with you after the service. Brothers and sisters, look, look back at verse 7. It's interesting, verse 7 speaks to God's guarding of this generation forever. And God's guarding is not for a limited time. God's guarding of his people is not even limited to our earthly lives. God will guard us forever. The salvation that David was praying for is not a temporary thing. David has some understanding that, that God's salvation and, and God's protection is forever. If you're in Christ, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Eternal life is forever. God will protect you and deliver you from evil both now and forever. We often don't think much about eternity. There's so much in our busy lives to think about when it comes to this week and this year. But it's so good to, to meditate on the promises that God has made. That God will be with his people. He will keep and guard his people for eternity. Our temporary trials and difficulties pale in comparison to eternity. Consider the fact that in heaven, evil cannot touch us. Evil cannot come anywhere near us. And one day, evil will be completely and utterly destroyed. Through God's judgment of evil, God will protect us from evil. The wicked still prowl today, but we have a sure hope. There may be trying times when we cry out in desperation to God because of the evil around us. But brothers and sisters, remember the promises of God's word. Remember that God will protect you. God will bring you safely to the eternal home he has prepared for you. It would do us good to meditate on how God guards and keeps his people both now and forevermore. It gives us confidence to live in a way that is pleasing to God today, a way that is in stark contrast to how the rest of the world lives. Desperate prayers turn confident when God speaks, and, and God has spoken. May the pure and beautiful words of God continue to teach us 
continue to shape us, continue to change us to be more like his son, Jesus. It is because God has spoken through his word and through his son, the word made flesh, that we are here this morning. And God's word will never fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are God. We praise you for you are the God who speaks. We thank you for you have spoken through your word and through your Son. Lord, we do pray that, that we would live in light of your word. Lord, we pray that your, your word would continue to teach us how to pray. And Lord, we pray that your word would continue to teach us how to live. Lord, would you, would you spur us on to, to good deeds this week? Would you spur us on to, to use our tongues to build one another up? Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.